Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode we have Professor Kate Epstein from Rutgers University in the United States. The other week we had Ian Johnson on the podcast telling us about how useless torpedoes were during the First World War. Well, Kate is an expert in torpedoes. She's literally written the book on it, Torpedoes, Inventing the Military-Industrial Complex in the United States and Great Britain. By blending military, legal and business history with the history of science and technology, Kate recasts the role of naval power in the run-up to the First World War and exposes how national security can clash with property rights in the modern era to influence the development of torpedoes. Basically, Kate takes us all the way back to the origins of that military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about in the 50s. Enjoy. Hi, Kate. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Good, good. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Now, I came across your book, Torpedo, Inventing the Military-Industrial Complex in the United States and Great Britain, and I had to get you on the podcast to discuss it, because it rewrites our whole understanding of this military-industrial complex, while providing what I found as a fascinating history of the weapon itself, the torpedo, and the importance of sea power prior to the First World War. But before we go into that, into the deep parts of that history, perhaps you can tell us what the military-industrial complex is. Certainly. So the military-industrial complex is a phrase that was popularized by President Dwight Eisenhower in his farewell address in 1961. And he was trying to describe a relationship that had developed between the U.S. government, particularly the defense part of the government, and the defense sector, the private defense sector in the United States, in which they had become deeply dependent on each other, intertwined with each other, in ways that Eisenhower found very worrying in terms of its implications for the American economy and for the American way of life. He saw it as a sort of threat to traditional conceptions of American liberty. And so the phrase generally has a sort of pejorative connotation to it. I use it more descriptively 
than pejoratively and try to kind of unpack the inner dynamics of the military industrial complex, which in Eisenhower's usage kind of looks like this very well-oiled machine. There are reasons for that, but I think when you kind of look into it, you can see these real tensions internally. So is what Eisenhower talking about, is he talking about some worries that he had about the fact that the US was exponentially increasing in its amount of nuclear warheads and missiles during the Cold War period. Is this the sort of thing he's talking about here? Is he launching a warning shot at people like General Curtis LeMay and Strategic Air Command and their inventions of brand new systems that must be had in order to defeat the Soviet Union? Is that his warning? Uh, No, actually, I don't think it is. Eisenhower was certainly concerned about the prospect of nuclear war. But I think in this context, he's trying to get at, I think something he actually saw as much more of a pervasive problem than kind of the, the mere problem of nuclear weapons, which was, of course, not a mere problem. But I think he was trying to get at the way in which the military industrial complex would somehow distort what he saw as the proper balance between warfare and non-military related activities in American society. There's this long fear of a sort of garrison state in the United States that a government could become too powerful and powerful in particular in terms of its capacity for warfare and turn the United States into a sort of very regimented militaristic garrison, a garrison of soldiers instead of free citizens. And so I think that's really the tradition discourse that he's tapping into there rather. And that's one that in U.S. history goes back to kind of the colonial period. It doesn't go back in exactly the form that it had turned into in the 20th century. But I mean, concerns of a, over a powerful central government, concerns over in particular a standing army, but actually in U.S. history, also a, a large navy that would require a central government with powerful taxing authority actually was much scarier to Americans than it was to Britons throughout the 18th and 19th century. So I think that's, those are the kind of strands, the ideas that Eisenhower is really tapping into there, not something centered on nuclear weapons specifically. Okay, so it's a broader warning about how this complex can reshape American society and the relationship between, I suppose, the public and the private, between the state and society and industry. Yeah, and I think he's worried about the influence moving in both directions. A very famous phrase in the farewell address is he warns about the unwarranted influence of the defense sector, kind of the councils of government. So he was certainly worried about the way in which unelected, unaccountable corporations could in some way distort the proper accountability of a democratic government to the people. And that was picking up in some ways on the sort of the merchants of death thesis that had circulated after World War One and then been popularized in the United States during the Nye Committee hearings in the 1930s, which investigated the merchants of death thesis in the U.S., But he was also worried about the influence going in the other direction of the state having distorting or re-channeling American economic activity and American society in overly militaristic directions. You know, the dollars that were being spent on warfare could instead be spent on building schools, for instance. So Eisenhower is a very interesting Republican and a very interesting president who had really thought deeply about these questions. 
Yeah, a, a very interesting Republican, because I've always taken this at kind of a face value, perhaps wrongly, quite a reductive understanding of it. But it really does sound like there is a warning shot, like you say, of both sides of how this can affect America and and really trying to, well, I suppose, put a warning out there for JFK about what he can do about this into the future. Yes, here we're kind of, we're going beyond like my expertise. There are people who know much more about Eisenhower and Kennedy than I do. But of course, Kennedy famously runs on the missile gap accusation that the Eisenhower administration had allowed the Soviets to overtake the United States in the production of nuclear missiles, which turned out to be incorrect. But this was a period in which Kennedy was a Democrat, was really trying to outflank Eisenhower, a Republican from the right on defense questions, but then pairing that with a willingness. Eisenhower was a fiscal conservative and very nervous about spending too much on either warfare or welfare that would prevent a balanced budget and in some way imperil the United States' ability to repay its debts. This is a major theme of John Gaddis's classic book, Strategies of Containment, is that Kennedy, who is wedded to Keynesian economics in a way that Eisenhower most certainly was not, (laughs) was kind of comfortable with a level of spending that Eisenhower was not comfortable with. And for Kennedy, it was spending on both war and welfare, as for Johnson, with both the Great Society and the Vietnam War. Yeah. And like you say, that election is decided primarily by a defense issue and an issue of defense spending as well. The idea of the missile gap that the United States is behind the Soviet Union and there needs to be more investment in that to catch up and to ensure the US isn't left behind. Well, that does in many ways decide that tiny, tiny margin between Nixon and Kennedy that pushes him into the White House. Now, in your work, let's take you back to your comfort zone because you take this all the way back to before the First World War. And your research centres around a special weapon, a new weapon, the self-propelled torpedo. So why is the torpedo so important? Well, it was a shock to me when I started writing the book that the answer to that question was apparently not (laughs) self-evident to people, (laughs) nor indeed was it self-evident to me when I began the dissertation on which the book was based. The torpedo history community is a shockingly small one. So in the Torpedo book, I push back a bit against Eisenhower's chronology. Eisenhower presented the military-industrial complex as something new in the American experience and kind of the early Cold War. And what I tried to argue in the book is that this is actually something that has deeper roots in U.S. history and actually in British history as well. And part of what I found fascinating was, you know, here are two nations that conceive of themselves as small L liberal anti-militaristic, committed to liberal property norms. And yet the military industrial complex sits somewhat awkwardly (laughs) alongside those small L liberal commitments. And so the torpedoes were interesting to me initially, not because of what they would allow me to say about the military industrial complex. I was actually flailing around for a dissertation topic, having very little idea (laughs) of what I was supposed to be doing and had these fairly absurd meaning of life questions that I hoped to answer in my dissertation. And my mother, who has a PhD, said to me one night as I was explaining to her my deep thought, she said, Kate, if you thought about picking a topic you can actually do? And I thought that was very, very profound (laughs) um, advice. And so I got it into my head. I was in a military history program. Jeffrey Parker, the very distinguished early modern historian, was my advisor and uh, fortunately a very patient one. So I got it in my head, well, maybe if I pick a weapon, 
that would be a way to bring these meaning of life questions kind of down to size. And so I started asking around for suggestions as to which weapon I could pick, because my interest in war had actually never been, you know, some people get drawn to war because of the hardware, you know, weapons or technological marvels. And that was never my interest. I was always interested much more in kind of the human side of war, command responsibility, following armies on maps and so forth. So someone said, you know, I haven't seen much on torpedoes. I was like, okay, (laughs) sounds interesting. So I started looking and lo and behold, there wasn't much on torpedoes. Actually quite a good book called The Devil's Device by um, Edwin Gray, which although it's kind of a quote unquote popular history, some of his research is really very good, but I wanted to kind of do something different. It's a book I respect a lot though. So anyway, I decided I would write about torpedoes and kind of my eureka moment in writing the dissertation was when I was reading some very boring contract negotiations between the U.S. Navy and its lead torpedo contractor, I realized that they were talking about intellectual property rights in this kind of new technology. And so torpedoes were what we think of as the modern torpedo was invented by Robert Whitehead in the 1860s. I really pick up the story in the 1890s, by which time Whitehead's great breakthrough was to figure out how to control the depth of a torpedo. That was the the quote unquote secret of the torpedo that he designed was the depth mechanism. But only in 1895 was a method devised of controlling torpedoes guidance in the horizontal plane as opposed to the vertical plane. And that was the application of the gyroscope to torpedoes. And that was one of a few quantum leaps in uh, torpedo development between the 1860s and World War I. The gyroscope is one, and then this other device called the superheater, which basically took cold air that was stored in the torpedo's flask and heated it so that it did more work per volume. And that was the first ones you get in just after 1900. So it's a fascinating weapon, kind of from a technological perspective. And it's an important weapon, actually, from a technological perspective, because it really is a technological marvel. I mean, the number of parts that are packed into these things, which have incredibly sensitive tolerances, is just extraordinary, far more complex, for instance, than like an infantry rifle. So they're important in that respect, but then they're also important in terms of their implications for application of naval force because they really freak out (laughs) a lot of naval officers in terms of kind of what the advent of torpedoes, especially as they get faster and longer range, what will that mean for capital ships with big guns, which had been kind of the defining metric of naval power for centuries? What are they going to mean for naval force? So it's kind of, there's a technological importance to torpedoes, and then there's a kind of tactical strategic importance And then there's also political economic importance of torpedoes, like how do they provoke or demand these new types of relationships between governments and defense contractors to develop this incredibly advanced, very secret new technology. And in particular, as I say, it started with, you know, reading these contract negotiations, I realized a lot of the difficulty centered on intellectual property rights. So basically, if you've got a government that is, in some cases, doing its own research, in other cases, you know, merely putting up the funds for private sector research and development, but the private sector is actually doing the research and development, well, then who owns the ensuing intellectual property rights? And how do you then reconcile those property rights with the state's interest in secrecy? 
And that's the kind of tension within the military industrial complex that I got interested in unpacking. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right. So Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And this is incredibly important because any state that's able to advance these torpedoes and have the latest torpedo technology has perhaps one of the most powerful weapons in the Navy. These are weapons that really did threaten to revolutionize naval warfare because you have gigantic, expensive, powerful ships that can, in essence, be taken out by perhaps an emerging submarine technology, yep. or indeed a much smaller vessel. So whoever owns these intellectual property rights has the power. Is that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, I think, where the secrecy interest comes from. These are not like trivial or marginal technologies. Torpedoes are really kind of at the center of Navy's internal debates about what should our force structure be? What should our doctrine be? One of the interesting things, which I certainly did not realize going into this, is that because early submarines were so clunky, the deployment of torpedoes that certainly the Royal Navy was worried about was actually from destroyers. 
destroyer is firing basically a spread of torpedoes at an opposing battle line. But yeah, it's actually, it's one of the ways I always kind of put it to myself was that there's a lot of work, rightly so, focusing on kind of the race between guns and armor in this period, you know, the battle to design armor-piercing shells, the, the attempt to design armor that can better resist the new projectiles. But there's an equally, possibly even more important race between guns and torpedoes, largely over range and to some degree over accuracy. I mean, torpedoes are very inaccurate, but they do a lot more damage per hit than guns do. And if you fire, you know, it depends on the angles and so forth, but if you fire a spread of them, the probability calculations were that you actually stood a real chance of one of the torpedoes you fired actually hitting an enemy ship in the line. That's why governments cared so much about these things was the kind of tactical and strategic implications. And then the property rights were, I mean, intellectual property is a really interesting, almost like a type of technology themselves a technology that you can use to secure other types of technology, a legal technology rather than a weapons technology. But yeah, but the property rights are this fascinating site of conflict between private defense contractors and the government because you know both US and Britain have patent systems. Patent actually comes from the Latin word for open, patere. So they're very small d democratic from a certain perspective. There's certainly about liberal norms of property protection. By the late 19th century, they actually start off as something quite different. But by the late 19th century, they carry that meaning. But part of what's interesting about them is that the government can own patents as well as the private sector. So the U.S. government actually takes out patents on one piece of torpedo technology that it invents that it thinks is really important. It turns out not to be. They thought it was at the time which is kind of awkward because how can you claim secrecy on something that you've patented? But the US government tried that. And another legal instrument that comes into the mix is anti-espionage legislation, which really, you know, there's a modern export control regime, which is incredibly sophisticated and the subject of a new book, which hasn't quite come out yet, but I'm super excited about by John Krieger and Mario Daniels. But the modern export control regime is like, very extensive, very sophisticated. It wasn't <laughs> before World War One, And so they both the U.S. and the British governments kind of took the tools that were available to try to control how contractors utilized their property rights. And contractors, unsurprisingly, wanted to sell and make money in a global marketplace, not just in a national marketplace. And so both the U.S. and the British governments kind of experimented with using anti-espionage legislation basically saying, you know, the export of technology counts as a sort of espionage, passing knowledge to our potential enemies. So it's the legal playing field or battlefield is absolutely fascinating, I think. And that's the part that I actually was kind of most excited about is like the legal political economy stuff. I agree. It is fascinating. So how does this end up with the torpedo? Is there an agreement made between the US and UK governments and those private industry elements that are involved in all of this complex process, or do things start to go awry? Yes and yes. <laughs> so there are agreements and things start to go awry. <laughs> so in Britain, the government had actually a publicly owned, I mean, in effect, an arsenal, the Royal Gun Factory, which built torpedoes 
and which actually developed an in-house superheater designed by a naval officer named Sidney Hardcastle. And because he was a naval officer, he was easier to control (laughs) for the government than a defense contractor would have been. He struck a deal with the British government in 1908, which he later became unhappy with. Um, I wrote about that in an article, kind of his fight with the, you also have these tensions, not only between the government and the private sector, but internal to the government, between basically inventors who are in government employment, but not actually employed by the government to invent. The category of research worker is really a World War I, immediate post-World War I development associated in some ways with really the establishment of the DSIR, the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. So Hardcastle, the category for him is service inventor, but it's not the same as research worker. And there's all sorts of legal questions and difficulties involved in his case. So there's an agreement with him, but it's an agreement that he later contests. The British government also arranges for Robert Whitehead to open a branch of his factory in Weymouth, which is still privately owned, of course, but within British borders. And one thing I couldn't get access to was the Whitehead corporate archive. I would have loved to have known whether there were fights if the British government gave Whitehead trouble over the passage of information between his Weymouth factory and his main factory, which was in Fiume, now part of modern Croatia. So the Royal Gun Factory and the Weymouth branch of Whitehead's works were kind of the two ways the British government went about procurement. The U.S. took a different path. It wanted domestic manufacture and had an American shell producer called the E.W. Bliss Company, which was run out of New York, basically license the right to produce Whitehead torpedoes from Robert Whitehead in Fiume, which it did for several years. But then the lead engineer of the Bliss Company, a guy named Levitt, he designed a superheater, which was not part of the original kind of Whitehead license. So that added an element of complication. And then it got even more complicated when he also invented a new type of engine, a turbine engine rather than a piston engine for the torpedo. And then the US government decided that his engine didn't work. And so it invented its own turbine engine. And the Bliss Company and the US government got into a big fight over basically who owned the intellectual property rights in particular to the engine but it was kind of a broader debate over what was the Bliss Company allowed to do with its torpedo, which you know a bunch of kind of different entities had a hand in designing. So that ended up in litigation. It went awry, you could say. You know, I find this fascinating because it really provides a window through which us as just non-expert lay readers can look and see at the really complex, quite disturbing world of discussions, debates and legal issues that go on behind closed doors about how weapons are developed, how they're kept secret or safeguarded by a nation state, or how and why they are sold perhaps to certain other nation states. And this is something that hasn't gone away, has it, Kate? Because I'm trying to think even when Biden took up the presidency, there were lots of debates about where he could sell the latest drone technologies and the missile technology control regime. So are there any lessons that we can take from your history about today? That's a great question. I mean, I think you're more qualified than I am to speak to kind of the drone debate and possibly more qualified to speak to kind of contemporary procurement challenges as well. 
I'm not a great believer in kind of historical lessons, just because I think the past is so complex and the present is so complex. It's, you know, you need a sort of one-to-one ratio almost for a lesson to exist in the way that that's usually meant. I think of what historians can do for contemporary debate more in the nature of just asking questions, suggesting lines of analysis that existed in the past that may be getting overlooked in the present. And so I guess for me personally, like the takeaway from the book was just like how complex all this stuff is and how hard it is to find a policy course that is kind of a good one. It really, so many of the policy choices these people were confronted with struck me as a choice, not between good and bad, but between bad and worse. And that there's kind of costs associated with every policy choice. There's no cost-free policy option in any of this stuff. So clearly for reasons that are very understandable, if you put yourself in their shoes, you know, some of the naval officials, you know, just fantasize about complete public control of the whole kind of procurement process. Then we don't have to deal with pesky capitalists who just want to make money um, and are hard to control. They don't always do what we want. And they mobilize the language of property rights against us. They're very irritating. So they fantasize about public control. But public control comes with its own set of problems. There's actually U.S. torpedoes in World War II famously stunk, to use the technical academic jargon. They had a defective depth mechanism and uh, the whiskers at the very nose of the torpedo basically didn't drive the firing pin back properly. And those torpedoes were publicly produced. And so there was, you know, one of the the secret sauce (laughs) that the U.S. government was trying to get right was like, what's the right balance? You know, if we have just public or just private, then we don't have competition. And a lack of competition can lead to basically poor products and adverse outcomes. But if we have competition, then we get into all these thorny questions about who owns the intellectual property rights, and we have to deal with these pesky capitalists. So that was kind of, to me, the takeaway is just that these questions are very complex. (laughs) And I was just struck over and over, like, by how many layers something that I thought might be simple turned out to have. And even with, like, tactics, like, I always thought strategy was the hard thing, and strategy is hard, but... Like to try to be figuring out doctrine in this period, like you really feel for these officers. I mean, it's a hell of an intellectual challenge because I mean, it's like everything is changing at once. So it's not just like you get to run a nice scientific experiment with one independent variable. You've got like 17 independent variables. The communications technologies are changing. Uh, You've got submarines, you've got torpedoes, you've got new types of shells. It's just a very difficult problem. And so that, to me, I guess, was kind of, it's not so much a lesson as just uh, understanding that this stuff is really hard, really complex, and there's a lot of work to do to be able to kind of possess an informed opinion about it. And there's such important questions that you raise as well, because if any of these decisions are made incorrectly and the decision that they make leads down a path to a weapon being defective or perhaps, better put, not as effective as they could be, then anything to do with the military strategy, the tactics or even the broader doctrine, well, they fall by the wayside, don't they? Because if you don't have the weapons that work, then you don't win the war. Yeah, I mean, they're making these decisions in positions of tremendous responsibility, you know, not only for people's actual lives, but also for, you know, vast sums of public money. 
So the stakes, yeah, are very high here and they're dealing with really hard problems. There's a historian I admire very much named John Sumita. And Sumita told me once, he said, before you can judge whether a decision is right or wrong, you have to understand why it was difficult. And I thought that was great advice. <laughs> um, and I just felt like being a historian is just learning the wisdom of that advice, because it, to understand why a decision was difficult, you have to understand all of the variables that are kind of in play for these guys. And you often have to understand them in a fairly granular level of chronological detail. So, you know, the problem on Friday is not necessarily the problem on Monday. So just kind of recreating the complexity of that process with enough precision is a lot harder than I realized when I started writing the book. And it's really, you know, you have to put so much work into that, that it, I mean, it's humbling. And that has come to me to seem where the real story is not the judgment question, were they right or wrong, but the, you know, let's try to put ourselves in, in their shoes and understand and explain as best we can. Well, thank you so much for giving us some level of understanding into this and an introduction into this important topic. Where can people read more about this? <laughs> they can read more about this in my book, which is available on Amazon. Last I checked, strangely, did not make the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, utterly perplexing. Go figure. That's sarcasm in case the tone doesn't translate. <laughs> well, I do recommend to go and buy the book. I have read it. I am a weapons nerd, so I really enjoyed <laughs> it. So that's why I would recommend it, but it was really good. Thank you so much, Kate, for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'll give you one more plug for the book. This is a book that I would encourage people to judge by its cover because the woman who designed the cover, which I had absolutely nothing to do with, won a prize for it. So I like to say that it is a prize-winning book. It won a prize for the bits that I was not responsible for, but it is nevertheless a prize-winning book that should be judged by its cover. <laughs> well, there you go. If nothing else, you can take the cover off and put it in a frame. There you go, exactly, it's artwork. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.